We're talking about Israelites going through the wilderness and what went wrong. All but two of the original millions died en route to the promised land. And what we're trying to understand is why. If we have a clear idea of what the problem was, we can then learn from them as we have our own relationship with Christ. Why did they not land in the place that God wanted them to land? And that's what we're trying to understand. And the writer to the letter to the Hebrews, he kind of does a spiritual autopsy, and he identifies the spiritual sickness that claimed the millions of lives. But he says, who were they who heard and rebelled? Were they not all those Moses led out of Egypt? And with whom was he angry for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the desert? And to whom did God swear that they would never enter his rest, if not to those who disobeyed? So we see that they were not able to enter because of their unbelief. What was the problem? He identifies several of them. Um, why did so many children of God die in the desert? It says they disobeyed. And the word disobedience is a specific kind we've been talking about. It's a specific kind of disobedience. It's a disobedience that's rooted in disbelief. It's disbelief-based disobedience. It's not just not doing what somebody says that you should do. It's not doing it because you don't trust them. You don't believe you have they have your best interests in mind, so they tell you what to do, and you say, I don't trust you, and that's the deal. It was disbelief-based disobedience. And then it says, at the deepest level, they were not able to enter because of unbelief. And when you think of what happened in the wilderness, the grumbling and the fault-finding and the straying, all that is rooted so far in disbelief-based disobedience and unbelief. It seems to be more a belief issue than a behavioral issue. And what we find in the Bible is that beliefs are foundational, and our behaviors actually are rooted in our beliefs. So if we have behavioral issues, and all of us wrestle with things, our tendency is to focus on the behavior but what this writer does and what the Bible does in general, it directs us to the beliefs that are at the root of the behavior. As I've said, um, Thoreau said, for every thousand people whacking away at the leaves of evil, there's one person striking at the root. If we're going to strike at the root of the problem in our world or in our lives or in our churches, what this writer suggests, you don't look at behavior. Behavior is the fruit of the problem. Belief is at the root of the problem. Again, this is a little bit difficult to swallow because in general, we are more concerned about our behaviors than our beliefs. Would you agree? It's kind of like what we focus on. If we see something, if we do something, if we do something wrong to our family, or we, we get angry at somebody, if we do this or that or the other, that disturbs us. Because it's something seen, but what the Bible would indicate, although that's what we see, the real issue is it not in what happens on the outside, but what happens on the inside. Um, disbelief is the problem. Okay. 
then what's the solution? Believe. But believe what? If we're to believe, and that's what it's going to suggest. Belief is an issue. But we have to ask, what will belief allow us to do? Let's see if we can find out. Um, it says, therefore, since the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us be careful that none of you be found to have fallen short of it. But we also have had the gospel preached to us, just as they did. But the message they heard was of no value to them, because those who heard did not combine it with faith. Now, we who have believed enter that rest. There's a couple things to this solution. First thing is exercise faith. If you had nothing to do with the Bible, if you never read it, and if you just, somebody handed you a Bible, you had no recollection of it, and if you started in the beginning and started to read, it wouldn't take very long for you to understand. Faith seems to be a big deal in this book. Uh, the people who had faith, they were able to do what God wanted them to do, the people who didn't have faith, so it wouldn't take us very long to understand, okay, faith seems to be really important to God. Um, faith is rooted in God's promises in the good news. It says they had the gospel preached to them. The gospel or good news preached to the Israelites is not the same gospel or good news that we have, but they had good news, and we have good news. The good news they experienced didn't benefit them. Why? Because they were bad. No, they didn't believe it. The good news they heard didn't benefit them because they didn't believe it. And here's what the writer seems to suggest. Good news doesn't benefit us if we don't believe it. That's interesting. I think, Would you agree? Good news, promises from God, he can give them to us, but unless we grasp them and believe them, they're not that beneficial. So that's the thing the writer is. He's looking at their path. He's looking at our path. What he's saying is, if you look at their path, heel marks in the sand, what you'll find is they ran into a lot of problems, but if you if you strip it away, it roots in a belief problem, and specifically, specifically with respect to the thing that they didn't grasp they had good news preached to them, and they didn't grasp it. That's the deal. Good news and promises can't benefit us if we don't believe it. So we have good news. And what the writer is doing then, be brilliant in the good news that God proclaims. Apparently, that's really, really important. What the disappointment and the discouragement and the disbelief, if we trace those roots down, it's in the soil where there was good news given, but it wasn't grasped. And because the good news wasn't grasped, then it led to other things. Um, what is faith? Let's say if we grasp the good news. Okay, let's say that we, and I think that we are. I think that we we. Focus here on promises, on God's commitments, not his commandments. I think that's 
That's good. I think that's what this writer is suggesting. If we grasped his commitments more fully, what would happen? What would it allow us to do? In, in the Bible, faith is it's attached to a lot of stuff. You know, if you have a bunch of faith, maybe we can get God to give us a miracle. That doesn't always happen, but in this context, faith, well, what it says, faith enables us to enter God's rest. It says, therefore, since the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us be careful that none of you be found to have fallen short of it. God had a rest for them, and we'll talk about what that means, and they fell short. They didn't get to the place where their connection with God allowed them to rest. And what it goes on to say is, um, we have had the gospel preached to us just as they did. The message they heard was of no value to them. It was no of no value to them because since they didn't believe the message, they couldn't enter the rest. And that was a problem. It says, now, we who have believed enter that rest. The word believe, it's the same word for faith. Apparently, here's the deal. God gives us good news. When we believe it, we're able to enter into God's rest. And when we enter into God's rest, apparently, that's going to allow us to walk more closely with God. It's going to allow us not to falter as much as the Israelites did. That seems to be the Holy Grail. That's the Holy Grail. Find out the good news, grab it, don't let it go, learn to embrace or take that good news and learn to enter into God's rest. That's what it seems to suggest. We're to enter into God's rest, it says, we who believe enter his rest. This is one of those verses that, look what it says. Let us therefore make every effort to enter that rest so that no one will fall by following their example of disobedience. The Bible has some strong commands. This is the strongest. This is stated in such a way there's not, to my knowledge, there's not a more forceful way to create a command than what is make every effort, leave no stone unturned. And you know what it says? Make every effort, literally, speed, hurry up. And what it's saying to us, hurry up and rest. Hurry up and rest. Do you want to focus on something? Do you want to be a little bit anxious or and to do and to be wanting to do something that really would be helpful, what this writer was saying? Make every effort to enter God's rest. Apparently, according to this writer, entering God's rest is priority one. Priority one. I'm like, that's not the deal I deal with. I'm really discouraged about my life. Enter his rest. I'm really disappointed. You know, this life is not giving me what I want. I don't have the relationships I want. I don't behave like I want to behave. I don't think like I want to think. I don't have what I want to have. I don't do what I want to do. Pretty frustrating, my Enter his rest. And apparently, when we deal with these things, the thing that will most help us to wrestle with all these things and keep walking with God is to enter his rest. Let's talk about that. What, how do we do that? But again, just to be clear, the key to dealing with disappointment 
discouragement, disbelief, the key to dealing with those things effectively? Learn to enter God's rest. That's what he's saying. One destination. And you'll get to, yeah, so let's think about that. Um, entering God's rest requires that we exercise faith and that we believe. We're going to talk about a couple of things. We're going to talk about, and we've talked about them in the past, but we've got to keep our mind on them. There's a couple of things that are really good news. Two things that are good news. The Father's sovereignty and the Son's sympathy. Those are really, those are really good news things. The Father's sovereignty, the sovereignty of the Father. We're going to talk more about that next week. But let's, what it says, that's where we find the first expression of rest. We'll look at more of this, but look at this verse. God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on it he rested from all the work of creating that he had done. So the rest that it describes, enter God's rest, it's describing the rest that God experienced where having created, having put everything in place, he sat back and he rested. It's it's the rest that comes on the far side of everything having been done. And you can, if you think about that, think of a project that you had to do. Complicated. You know, you had to do this and get that and, and go to Menards and grab this and you do all these things and then you roll up your sleeves and you do it and it's a Saturday and it bleeds over into Sunday and then, and it's done. It's done. A sense of rest on the far side of work. And that's what God's rest is. God put all these things in place. And I guess, and we'll look at this more next week, when God finished creating, he rested. And he's been resting ever since. What we are supposed to do, join him. Supposed to join him in his rest. Enter into his rest. Let's think of how we how we do that. Um, we'll talk more about the sovereignty of the Father. And I guess one thing to helps us to rest, I want you to think about if you're in a situation where things are really, uh, really difficult. I don't know, maybe you're working on something and or you're experiencing something and everything's going awry. And there's somebody that seems to come and radiates. Listen, I know what to do. And this person is not biting their fingernails. He's saying, let me tell you what we need to do here. Somebody who actually is, is seems to be clear, is in charge, can be very helpful. Will you agree? That's God. That's what God is like. God is not biting his fingernails. He's not pacing up in the throne of God. He, he is very confident of what And so when that happens, somebody with really broad shoulders is helpful. God has really broad shoulders. And, but not only that, he, he has a big heart as well. Think about the sympathy of the Son. That's what it says. We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. But we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet was without sin. Let us then approach the throne of grace with confidence 
so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. I uh, will mention this a lot, but approaching the throne of grace with confidence is a really, really important. It's important to understand what that confidence is. It's the confidence that you have when you are invited to enter into the presence of somebody in charge. That's part of it. You Like a king or God, in this case, he invites you to come into his presence, but it doesn't stop there. You don't Enter the throne of grace with confidence if you come into God's presence, and that's it. It's entering into God's presence and speaking freely with him when you're there. That's what confidence is. It's entering and speaking freely. And that's what we, receiving mercy and finding grace to help in time of need, receiving mercy and finding grace to help in time of need, requires that when we are restless, we learn not just to fix things. Now, there's going to be things we're going to have to fix, but not just. We learn to come to God's presence, to enter it, and to talk with him about the things that we're concerned about. That is essential to entering into his rest. Um, what do we need to think about? And again, we're going to think about the sovereignty of the Father next week. But with this week, we're thinking about the sympathy of the Son, specifically Jesus. I'm going to suggest three things that you've heard before. Um, think, three things that you can think about. And actually, when you're thinking about him, these can help you to focus on things about Jesus. I'm going to give you three of them. You see me. You sympathize with me. You deal gently with me. Those three things, when you focus, those are focusing on something in Jesus that will allow you, once you understand them, to make your way into the throne of grace. What will those things be? He sees you. He sees you. He sympathizes with you. He deals gently with you. Let's look at them one at a time. Um, you see me. Um, it says now about Jesus while he was in Jerusalem. At the Passover feast, many people saw the miraculous signs he was doing and believed in his name. But Jesus would not entrust himself to them, for he knew all men. He did not need man's testimony about man, for he knew what was in a man. You know what that says? He sees you. He sees you. He didn't need for people to tell him, ah, let me tell you about let me tell you about it. And he said, no, you don't need to, because what he says, I see you. I see you. And it's not, I see you, it's, I see you. I see why you're concerned. I see why you're worried. I see why you're restless. I see it. I see the restlessness. I know why you're restless. I know why you're up at night. I know why you wake up at three in the morning. I know it. And so he sees you. Um, Jesus knows why we want what we want. He knows why we, why we do what we do. He knows why we think what we think, and he knows why we feel what we feel. You are not, we are not mysteries to Jesus. He understands us too deeply. Um, you see me, number one, and sometimes that's a deal. Sometimes we get, when we're disturbed, and our thoughts are just racing, it's hard to believe that anyone really understands what we're thinking. What Jesus would do, 
is look at you and say, I see you. And so one thing you might think of when you think of approaching the throne of grace, so you're thinking of, Mike, you know, I want to learn to do that. I guess I really need to enter God's rest. So this is something that you can do. But as you think about entering God's rest, think about this, the sympathy of the Son. And number one, and even say this to him, or if your prayers are in your mind or out loud, either way, Jesus, thanks that you see me. You see me. And put a little meat on the bones. You know why I'm upset today. You know why I'm frightened. You know why I'm happy. He knows. When we say that and think about it, you know what we're doing? We're not just hearing good news, but we're exercising faith. Every time you take something like that and try to make it part of your thoughts, okay, I'm good, but you see me. It's like in a spiritual way, it's like what you do physically. Every time you lift a barbell or you, if, if you're doing weight training to try to become more fit, every time you push the weight up, that's exercising. And the way we exercise faith is we take something to focus on and we focus on it. You see me. Every time you do that, Every time you think about it and applying, you're exercising your faith. You're thinking about good news. You see me. That's good news. You see me. And the second thing to think about is you sympathize with me. Not only does he see you. See, you can see somebody, but be distant from them. Jesus doesn't just see you he, and me. He sympathizes with us. What it says now my heart is troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? No, it's for this very reason I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. When the sense, my heart is troubled, it's the image of a, a storm at sea. If you've ever been, I lived, I grew up on the coast of Boston, and sometimes we'd be driving, and the, the, the wind and the waves would be tossed and breaking up onto the break walls, and that's the image Jesus is creating, he says, my heart is like a storm at sea. What I want to suggest, and this becomes really important, Jesus understands restlessness. What we saw, if you trace the root of problems, discouragement, disappointment, disbelief, but if you trace the root, it gets to restlessness question. I want you to think about your thoughts. Does Jesus sympathize with our disbelief? I don't think so. I don't think Jesus disbelieved. Does Jesus sympathize with our discouragement? Well, maybe. How about our disappointment? I don't know. Does Jesus, dis does Jesus sympathize with our restlessness? Does Jesus know what it's like to feel restless? This verse indicates yes. He says, my heart's agitated. My heart's restless. He had thoughts and feelings that were stirred up. Jesus gets restlessness, and restlessness is at the root of the issue. So the reason why I say that, you say, well, Jesus' sympathy, what can he sympathize with? He was the Son of God. He gets restlessness. And that becomes important because you can't really trust somebody's sympathy if you don't think they share your experience. Does Jesus share our experience? Yes! That's why he had to become flesh and blood. That's what it says. Um, 
It says, for surely it's not angels he, Jesus, helps, but Abraham's descendants, people with flesh and blood like you and me. For that reason, he had to be made like his brothers in every way, ancestors, in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God, that he might make atonement for the sins of the people. Because he himself suffered when he was tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. We talked about this before. Angels, Jesus didn't come to help angels, because angels aren't like us. They are unembodied spirit beings, spirit beings that aren't in a body. So angels don't have a lot of conflict. They are like data in Star Trek. They're just pretty focused, pretty clear. They don't have this operating system, a mortal operating system, and an immortal operating system in colliding together. Angels, they can't understand conflictedness. We are not angels. We are embodied spirit beings, spirit beings in a body. Those are two operating systems that don't get along. And you know what it creates? Restlessness. Restlessness. Restlessness is not a bad thing. It's something to deal with. Restlessness is non-negotiable. We are going to be restless. Jesus was restless. He gets it. He understands it. And that's what's going to happen. He was a spirit being in the mortal body like we are. And the reason why he became a spirit being in the mortal body, so that he could say to you, I see you. I sympathize with you. I know what it's like to be restless. Is that helpful? Is it easier to come to somebody and enter into their presence when you understand that they understand? What Jesus does, entering into the Father's presence, he meets us there, and he comes in with us. Jesus understands. He sympathizes with our restlessness. Jesus came to experience tension in order to be a merciful and faithful high priest. I'll tell you one thing, and maybe we've said this before. The difference between the Old Testament of the Bible and the New Testament of the Bible, in one word, very different stories. Again, there's some really good things in the, in the Old Testament, but there's a lot of things that are hard to swallow. You know the difference between the Old Testament and the New Testament? I can say it in one word. But I know what that word is? Sympathy. Sympathy. It says about the angels who were escorting the Israelites, it says they will not be able to forgive your rebellion. Angels don't do sympathy. They can't. Jesus is sympathetic because he gets us. And so that's why in the New Testament, we find sympathy. And what that sympathy allows us to do? A really important thing. The most important thing to learn to enter his rest. We enter his rest by thinking about the sovereignty of the Father, the sympathy of the Son, the sympathy of the Son, was the two things. You see me. You see me. You sympathize with me. And what I'm going to suggest, these are things, maybe you grab them, and when you move towards God, when you're praying out loud, I don't know how you pray, maybe you're thinking at nighttime, maybe it's before you go to bed, or when you wake up in the morning, whenever your thinking is clear, Think about that when you move towards him. You're thinking about all the things about the day. I have this meeting. I have that thing. I'm going to have to talk to her about that. The things that are going to stir you up. That's okay. 
Being stirred up, that's natural. Don't just stop there. Enter his rest before you enter your day. Enter your rest. How do I do that, Mike? Okay, think about what we're saying to know. Think about the sympathy of the sun. Think about your, your day. What's well, today? Think about today. Today's not a bad day. You know, if in, in fact, God rested on that day and he called it holy. That's the word. That's why we call days off. Holy days. Holidays. Holidays. What are holidays? Well, they can be a day you don't do any work. <laughs> you know, not always. Yeah, but you understand what I mean. Um, so, thinking about going towards him. Think about that. Let me give you three things to think about. You see me. Thank him for that. You know what you do when you thank him for seeing you? You exercise your faith. You strengthen your belief. You see me. Don't just stop there. Tell him you sympathize with me. Thanks that you see me. You understand. You felt my restlessness. You felt restlessness. Thanks that you sympathize with me. You understand what it's like. And that you deal gently with me. That's the third thing. Um, it says, he is able to deal gently with those who are ignorant and are going astray, since he himself is subject to weakness. Somebody who's been through things is not going to be impatient with you. When you go to him with restlessness, Jesus is not going to be impatient with you. You know what he's going to be? Gentle. Because he understands it. So, what it says is, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Hmm. That's interesting, isn't it? I will give you rest. That's not just something that you enter. It's something that God wants to extend, and we experience rest in his rest as we come to him. How do we come to him? By thinking, you see me. Think about the sympathy of the Son. You sympathize with me. You deal gently with me. This gentleness and sympathy, and we're done, it's not nice. It's necessary. If somebody is restless, you know what they need? They need gentleness. I want you to think about a time when you were restless. Maybe it was with the boss, or maybe it was with folks. And if they were impatient with you, it didn't really help the restlessness, did it? it? made it worse. But if they were gentle, tell me about it. It kind of brings you down. That's what God is like. Jesus sees you, he sympathizes with you, and he deals gently with you. Why should I know that? Why do I want to know that? Because entering God's rest is priority one. It's the most important thing, and it's something we have to learn. In order to learn to do it, think about this. Think about the sympathy of the Son. And you could express it to him. You see me. You sympathize with me. You deal gently with me. Think about those things as you go to him in prayer. And that will help us to exhale our concerns and inhale his commitments which is the hallmark of rest. Let's stand for closing prayer, and I'm going to pray for us. And hopefully you'll be able to stay and, and have some, some food. Uh, let me pray for us and for the meal. Now, thanks for your promises, and that you tell them to us so that we can think about them, and we can meditate on them. We can 
make room in our minds for them, like we've done this morning. We've thought about restlessness is non-negotiable. It's just a part of living in a place where things go wrong. Restlessness isn't bad. Jesus, you felt it. What you want us to do is enter your rest. And that comes from understanding the the sovereignty of the Father and the sympathy of the Son. That helps us to come to you and to breathe in your presence. You sympathize with us, Jesus. You see us. You sympathize. You deal gently with us. And Father, you're strong. And so when we think about that, it helps us to feel less alone. And that's what you want to cultivate. You want us to, when we deal with those things, to learn to come to you. Pray that you continue to do that, because that's apparently the most important thing. Jesus' name. And God, thanks for the food we got to share and the opportunity to get to share it together. In Jesus' name. Amen.